What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I got Pat Longry of Uniform Choice. Super stoked for that. It's a rad interview, and you're going to enjoy it, so stay tuned. This Friday, the new Retaliate LP 4 is going to be out on all the streaming platforms, so check that out, and be sure to shoot me an email. Let me know what you think about it, 185milesouth at gmail.com. It's also the last week to uh, pre-order the thing. Uh, the plant is being slow, so the the records are on a slight delay, but uh, they'll get out as soon as they're done. We got to get those B-side screen printed, and basically, uh, yeah, so last week you can order the uh, the record with like the Brian Walsby art that'll be screen printed on the B-side. Also, when you get that Retaliate record, make sure you pick up that Abrasion record, get that tuning LP, get that new Death by Stereo, fill up your car. You know what to do. Uh, indecisionrecords.com is where you're going to handle business. Please support the podcast by subscribing to it wherever you listen to it. Also, if you have time, like it, rate it, review it. I don't know why, but that stuff matters. If you want to go the extra mile, go to patreon.com slash 185 miles south and become a monthly Patreon to support the podcast. Uh, we are trying to do and have been doing uh, basically a Patreon episode for every single interview podcast. So this week is uh, Pat Longry, and on Friday or Saturday, a Patreon pod will come out where we will talk about that interview and also go through like the discography of uh, Pat Longry. And so those are super rad. They're some of my favorite podcasts. Check it out. $1 gets you behind, a $1 gets you behind the paywall. And let's get on with the pod. Hundred eighty-five miles south, a hardcore punk rock podcast. What's up, everyone? This week on the pod, I have the drummer of the greatest straight-edge hardcore band out of California ever, Pat Longry from Uniform Choice. What's up, Pat? Oh, not much. Thanks a lot for that. Uh... Uh, a lot of great bands that uh, that uh, from Southern California. That's for damn sure. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, how did you get into punk and hardcore, and what year would that have been? Um, you know, funny enough, my uh, I'm from uh, Wisconsin, and my dad moved out here with my uncle, and uh, I think I was 11, like 1976, and uh, kind of the the four of us. My dad was only 18 years older than me, so. Um, he, he was, uh, young and we did a bunch of stuff together. It was fun. And I remember, uh, my uncle came back from San Francisco and I think it was 1978. He was visiting his sister and he was all bummed out that he didn't, um, go see, uh, this weird band, um, called the Sex Pistols because they were playing there. And I'm like, really? So I, I did kind of, you know, he was laughing about it. And I, I kind of got, you know, into researching what they were because I had no idea. Um, and then uh, the next couple of years, just, you know, getting into it just, just a little bit, not, 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 not hardcore type until I went to uh, my freshman year uh, in the summer for actually for football, freshman football. 
And uh, there was a kid there, um, I still remember his name, Rich Perez. He was uh, a sophomore, and he brought in uh, the locker room because we didn't go home. Uh, I lived too far away. So in between two days, um, he brought his ghetto blaster, and he played Jealous Again and uh, the Sex Pistols and a, and a bunch of other stuff. And it was, that's kind of, you know, it was 1979, 1980 is when... Uh, when I was introduced to the new sound of punk. And when, when do you take the, the jump from like a listener to wanting to like be an active participant of like going to shows? Uh, immediately. Um, immediately because uh, the people that, that were on that, the freshman team with me, I played football with and baseball with all along there. Um, one was my, my best friend there, Pat Dubar. And uh, obviously, we were into the same things. Um, later on, um, I, I know Dan O'Mahony was there for a brief spell at Modern Day, the high school we went to, and then John Mastropolo um, was there. And uh, so it was um, it was pretty much immediate. It was something that was was fun and, and loud and, and strong and obnoxious, and we got into it. I just jumped into it um, headfirst, uh, going to shows right away if we can get somebody old enough that had a license to take us to shows um and 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 just luckily some of the shows like the cuckoo's nest were uh that was in costa mesa they were not far away from where all of us lived so we could we could get down there and and the shows that we had to go to la like the palladium and stuff you know we'd all have to jump into somebody who had a licensed truck or something and go to the show so it was uh it was it was an exciting time, and it's something that as soon as I heard the 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 music um, and the angst in the music, it, it fit it fit perfectly to me like a glove. Were you more influenced by bands you heard, like on record, or was it like the live experience that made you want to like be in a band? Well, it, it, it's interesting. It's it's kind of I, I would say it's kind of a bit of both. It, it, in it's difficult to explain to people, um, let's say my kids, I have a 24-year-old son and a 21-year-old son, to explain to them that there was no <laughs> there was no internet and there was no instant information that you could go find. I mean, we went to two or three different record, um, record stores, said being one of them, and, and, and flyers. So, you know, you really didn't, you didn't have um, a, a whole, uh, you know, network of places that you could go to find out where shows were. Um, and then, so, you know, once you got flyers, that was the key thing. They were up all over the place because the bands, that's how you got people to go to your shows. Um, there was no, you know, go to my Facebook page or Instagram or, or Twitter. Um, so you always go to the same places, Huntington Beach, had all that stuff, um, Zed Records. Um, and to see who's playing, you get this, you know, set everything up that particular way. And when you see them live, it's just so exciting. Um, when you, when you purchase a damaged or, or jealous again, and you're playing it over and over again, and then you can go to a show and, and, and these guys weren't, it wasn't like they were Led Zeppelin or, or, or the Scorpions. They were just regular guys showing up and playing. And that was also extremely intriguing at such a young age to be, um, part trying to be a part of something that, that I saw was um, uh, a bigger hole 
for me anyway. Uh, uh, and it was, uh, you know, just being a part of it, getting flyers, getting fanzines, having pen pals with people. Cause that's what you did. You wrote letters back to exchange stuff. And, uh, like in the back of maximum rock and roll or flip side, people would just write in, you know, and then you could write them back. Uh, and we later with, with Pat and I, we did a lot of that with uniform choice. We just put our, I think the unity, we just put, I think it was my address on the back of the single. And then you got mail and then you just, you return the mail. Um, so it, it, it's kind of a bit of both seeing them live and then say, you know, I want to do that. I think we can do that. It'd be fun to do that. Um, and then, then going from there. Were there standout shows though, that like really, really grabbed you anything specific that you remember? Oh man. So many in the, in the early days. Um, but a, a couple that were, were just phenomenal. One was, um, uh, the dead Kennedys headlined a show in orange County. Um, and minor threat opened up for them. And then it was MDC opened up for them. And then it was uh, the zero boys from Indianapolis, Indiana played. And that was just an, an incredibly awe inspiring show. That was just, that was fun to just be there. It's probably my all time favorite live show that I saw just crazy, just such good musicianship and fun and funny stories about jello trying to talk to the audience about you know politics and bombs and you know cr- talking to the audience about uh, the the politics of the day and everybody's like okay okay just keep playing but in a you know respectful way and he's like grabs a, a, a paper cup and crumples it up between before a, a song and throws it you know a, a, kind of effeminately like this is a bomb that's going to blow up in our faces and he throws it kind of effeminately and just seeing that was just hilarious just hilarious not that he was trying to be hilarious but just jello being jello was just fantastically funny um trying to talk to 17 and 18 year old kids about the dynamics of politics you know stuff like that was great um uh just any show at the galaxy or the the thunderbird rollerdrome um, was crazy. A lot of TSOL shows there. Um, Wasted Youth, uh, Suicide of Tendencies, the second, that's the first time they played down here. They played as a three piece, and I had been pen pals with Steve uh, uh, and Kevin. And so when we saw them, it was like, you know, being like long lost pals, best buddies. When they came down, they instantly had friends because all my friends. You know, I told them about them and about their single, uh, Skinny Brains and Guts. So when we came down, it was great. It was like seeing, you know, your cousin that, that you haven't seen in a long time. It was just such a sense of camaraderie um, in all of the shows that I, you know, that, that especially the early shows in the early 80s, 81, 82, 83, stuff like that. Um, just so many, I, I couldn't even... Uh, imagine, uh, as I remember them, uh, I'll, I'll just blurt them out to you as, as, as it comes back into my mind. But so many, every weekend there was a Friday and a Saturday night show. One could be in the back of somebody's house where you go see Social Distortion play. Um, one was at my house. I had uh, uh, Uniform cho- It wasn't Uniform Choice. It was before Uniform Choice and before Unity. But Pat and I had a band, and we played at my mom and dad's house. I went around to all the neighbors. And lifted up the garage, and, and my parents were away for the weekend. 
And I had the craziest, we had the craziest show you could ever imagine here for like an hour and 10 minutes. And the police were never called because I talked to everybody and I knew all the, the people around. And, you know, everybody was here. Like Jack was here from TSUL and walking through my house, flashing people. It was just, it was hilarious. <laughs> That's great. Um, the beginning of Unity and Uniform Choice, like when you're trying to research it, is kind of sketchy. Just, you know, the one thing that recently threw me for the loop was I was looking at the the Unity 7-inch that came out in on Lost and Found in 95. And it said that it was from, uh, like it was recorded live at Lance's house in 1982. And I didn't realize that Unity was that old. Can you talk about like the start of Unity? Sure. Sure. Well, Unity, um, Pat and I, we were, like I had said earlier, we went to high school together. We were best friends. Um, uh, we did everything together every single weekend. We played football together. We played baseball together. We loved the same music. We figured everything out together. And we decided that one of us was going to buy a PA and be the singer, and one of us was going to buy a set of drums. Because you can always find a guitar player and a bass player, but it's really hard to get to find a drummer, um, especially in this kind of music. So we actually physically flipped a coin. I think we were sophomores in high school. Flipped a coin, and um, he went out and bought a PA, and I went and bought a drum set. That's how we started playing bands. Um, and just um, practicing with different, you know, different guys, played guitar and bass, really guys from Pat's neighborhood, actually, uh, around Fountain Valley, just kind of figuring things out. This is before Uniform Choice and before uh, Unity. And then um, Pat um, had a chance to join uh, Uniform Choice. He, they asked him to be the singer in Uniform Choice, and I was gung-ho, for sure. That'd be great. So, and then I went and started um, uh, Unity. So, kind of around the same time, um, maybe... Unity was a, a little earlier, but it, it roughly about the same time. And uh, Unity was with Joe, Joe Foster, and I, and with uh, with Rob, uh, Rob Lynch, who Rob and Pete Lynch were mainstays to the hardcore community. Uh, went to every single show you could ever imagine. Great guys. They lived in Laguna Hills, right down the street from us. So, and I like Rob a lot. And I, 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 you know, he's living in Arizona now, but he was just a great front guy. Um, and we, we had a bass, a bass player named Joe. Um, and, uh, that's how it was, it was different paths, um, to play, to play music. And Pat was playing in Uniform Choice and doing real well with that. And then Unity was playing shows and occasionally we play together. Um, and, and, and that's how, that's how, um, we began playing in bands that would eventually, you know, play bigger shows and then and record um, uh, albums, seven inches an album. Do you remember the first unity show or any of your, those early shows? Uh, we played at Ichabod's with uh, any of the subtitles. We played with social distortion at, um, uh, I, I forgot where that, I, I think it was a concert factory. I, I'm not, I'm not positive that one. We played with Youth Brigade because uh, Sean was a, was a good guy, and I liked Sean, and, and Sean was a, a little older than us, but I, I, I respected him with Youth Brigade, and we got on quite a few shows with, with them, 
Um, and I was very always thankful with the BYO with his with his two brothers too that we played like the Cafe de Grand with uh, with Youth Brigade. Um, lots of really cool shows. And then when and uh, I I was asked to join Uniform Choice, we uh, we played a few shows with Uniform Choice and with Unity um, with the same members, uh, and that was a lot of fun too. But we only played a couple of times like that. But that was. That show was a hell of a lot of fun. Yeah, so <clears throat> the Unity singer leaves, and you get to bar on vocals for the, the seven inch. Though, why why does that happen? Um, Rob's um, brother, older brother, uh, committed suicide, and it was shockingly, um, obviously, um, traumatic for he and his family. And they moved to Los Alamitos. And he was really bummed. And at that time, I mean, you're you just play, we're just garage band, you know. So when you moved to Los Alamitos in 1980, whatever it was, 83 or 84, um, it you know it's like a million miles away. So in essence, we didn't really have um, we didn't really have the means to to add another finger. And that was the time that um, I had graduated. We had graduated high school and I was going to college anyway. So it was just one of those things where it was extremely sad. And that's why we couldn't continue on with unity. And then, um, and then I went to, uh, Pat went to Pepperdine and I went to my freshman year at UCLA. And then um, that's, that's how that came about. And then the, the single, was Pat and I when I when I joined Uniform Choice, um, we thought that we would start wishing well because at that time there really were only a few rec- legitimate record companies, Touch and Go, Discord, a couple others that you could put your record out with, and not a lot here on the West Coast, Posh Boy and some others, but you know it just it wasn't what we wanted to do. Those types of labels. Uh, Posh Boy and some of the others around here weren't going to give us the type of control that we wanted over the content. Not necessarily how much money we made, because no, I know I never care. I only speak for myself. I never cared about any of that. It was just about control. So um, we decided to to form uh, Wishing Well, and instead of putting the Uniform Choice album out as the number one Wishing Well number one, we thought, why don't we? You know, why don't we do the Unity single? Because obviously, John and Joe and I know all the songs. Pat was like 100% behind it because it was something that, you know, was like a, a brother band. So that's that's what we did. We rehearsed, rehearsed, um, and, and, and he learned all the songs. And, and then we went into the studio at the Casbah the, the and recorded that all live, um, all in the same room, um, doing it all, all at once. And that it was basically let's put out the uniform, uh, the unit single to kind of get our feet wet because we have no idea what we're doing. Typesetting, you know, where do you get it stand, you know, pressed? You know, who would do that for us? How much money do we have to come up with? You know, all the things that you know, I, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, so better to do that trial by fire with the unity single um, than uh, than the uniform choice album, screaming for change. Right, so Unity's already broken up by then, and and you're doing this like after the band breaks up, just like so it's remembered. 
Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that's a that's a fair statement. Yeah, that I would say that it, it was something that was still fresh with with Joe and I and Pat. You know, Pat knew the the songs as well, so it was something that we wanted to get down, and we thought would be a shame if we didn't um, we didn't record it. And it was perfect for us to kind of, like I said, like kind of learn how to do, uh, to, how to get something pressed and worked on and, and distributed. So that's, that's how we came about unity. And I'm glad we did. That was the smart move. Uh, you know, looking back in retrospect, there were things that obviously you'd like to change if you can about anything in life, but that's not one of them. That was, uh, that was a good move because, I really loved the unity stuff we were doing. And so did Joe and Pat got into it as well. And I, I didn't want it to be lost and it wasn't. And, um, you know, we, we got Gavin to do some artwork and I took a picture of Pat, um, uh, for the cover. I thought about all the stuff. I, and, and, you know, I had my mom do the calligraphy for the titles on the back. Um, and then they cut jo- John Laurie's name off when they printed the sleeves. So he's always been known now as John Lowe is actually, his name is John Laurie. <laughs> Chuck like that, you know, Chuck like that is hilarious when it happens. John was like, what? I'm like, well, you're John Lowe now. That's the way it is. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you did it too. Cause the seven inch is killer. And, uh, oh, I appreciate it. I love, we, we loved those, that music and I'm glad. I wish we could have been able to do it with Rob. Um, he's such a great, like I said, I can't stress enough. He and his brother Pete, were like mainstays of the hardcore scene in Orange County. Like every show, coolest guys you'll ever want to meet. And I, I wish that he would have been able to to en- enjoy that because he put his heart and soul into it. But um, you know, Pat Pat was a pretty good um, uh, replacement, and he 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 liked the music as well too. And uh, you know, I'm glad we did it too. It was something we put a lot of time and, and effort in. And to have just not been able to get it down on vinyl. So around 85, when this seven inch comes out and the uniform choice demos out, how are people reacting to the sound? Because I mean, there is some similar stuff like the Stalag 13 LP comes out in 84. Uh, you have America's hardcore uh, justice league is starting. There is uh, ill repute. Of course you have some stuff going like that, but the unity and the uniform choice is so abrasive and in your face. Is it well received out the gate? Um, I'd say, I'd say yes. Um, pleasantly. Yes. Uniform choice was, was, um, you know, Vic and Pat Dyson and, and Dave and, and, and Pat were, were really, you know, aggressive guys. You know, Vic was a couple of years older and, and Vic went to modern day with us, but he was a couple of years older. I think he was like four years older than us. And Dave um, was a mainstay in the um, in Huntington Beach scene. In fact, Dave was dating Vic's sister during this whole time. And, and you know, you got Pat Dyson, who's a great drummer and a character and a big, huge mountain of a guy. And then you got Pat, who, I, you know, it'd be hard to find a better hardcore frontman than Pat Dubar. Uh, I'm biased, but you know, we had a lot of fun and, and it was aggressive. Uh, I, I, I don't, I don't know if many of your listeners were able to see uniform choice live, but you got, you got your money's worth. We, that's what I cared about more than anything ever 
is is um, we had something we had something to say, and it was our voice. We were influenced by people, uh, Ian Mackay, um, uh, Choke, Kevin, uh, Kevin Seconds. These people, Jack and, and, and Keith Morris and Henry, Henry Rollins, these, these people were not shy people. These were in-your-face people, and, and that's kind of how we were. That's how I was, and that's how Pat was, you know, playing sports and being um, uh, aggressive. And that's, that's, that's what we came out with, and especially with the, the straight edge slant to everything that we did was, I wouldn't say it was militant, it was, it was um, ingrained in us. It was something that we we believed in, and uh, with all our heart. And you, you you could tell by how much we cared about the lyrics and how the songs were structured. And especially, like I said, if you saw us live, uh, you got your money's worth. There wasn't there wasn't any fucking around. We we came out to to um, to have just as much fun as the people that wanted to see us. And I mean uh, I mean that in a in, in a very humble way, because we saw ourselves as just people that just picked up some instruments and, and played just like anybody else, not any better, not any worse. We always watched, even on our tours, I watched all the opening bands, talked to them, you know, um, I, I, re- I returned all my letters, you know, stuff like that. So it, it, it's not like, it, I, we felt like this is us. This is who we are and this is how we uh, view ourselves here in Orange County. And this is the message we're trying to get out to the people that are peers. And then later on, you know, to around the United States um, with genuine um, anger, but in a good way, I, I would say aggressiveness rather than anger then. Did, did you tour at all before the LP came out? No, we, uh, we did not. Our, our first tour um, was, uh, the 1988 with uh, uh, for Screaming for Change. That's 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 the uh, the first time we ever we bought a a, a white extended uh, Ford van with the money that we had saved. Um, Courtney, hit, uh, Pat's younger brother, who is an entrepreneur um, to the fiftieth degree, um, he uh, came with us. And he printed 200 dozen T-shirts. So in the back of the car, we, or in the back of the van, we had 200 dozen T-shirts, my drums, and equipment. So it was a tight squeeze um, on, on that tour, but it was uh, just the greatest time of my life. We had so much fun. So is that right before the second LP came out when you toured? No, we toured in 88 and, and, and we toured in 89 as well. Okay. And in in 1989 was, I think Pat named it, I think it was a reality tour. I, I, I remember that. And he, that, that's, we, we had both Scream for Change and um, uh, Staring into the Sun were already out and done. So we were, we were able to play songs from both albums okay. on the, the next year that came up. Let's let's jump into recording screaming for change. Actually, before we do that, um, you said you bought your first drum set, but I heard a rumor that uh, you got a drum set. Like, a, did you come up on Discharge's drum set? Is is it's an old enough story that it's okay to put it out there? Uh, 
Did I do what? <laughs> I someone had told me once that that uh, <laughs> you came up on discharges drum set. Like, did you? No, 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 no. Did I? No, no. I, I, I don't. I don't even know where that that came from. I, I again, you know, I, I don't have like Facebook or Instagram or anything like that. So I have not been in in privy since like 1989 yeah, until presently. Would, okay. No, no. I, I did not buy a drum set. That's the truth. I did yeah. not. I, I got it for free from a buddy of mine who had a drum set in his garage. Okay. So he let me have it, but it didn't have a foot pedal. And God, God's truth, I had, I had no idea you needed a foot pedal. So I would just, you know, bang away on the toms and on the snare. Um, and I had one cymbal and, and a hi-hat. So the first show that we ever played, we played three songs in Laguna Beach, of all places, at, at, a, uh, at a warehouse there. And I had no idea that I needed a kick pedal until I saw the three other bands that played before me. And I said, well, I better get one of those. And that, cause I, I never had any lessons or anything. You just go out and go out in the garage and bang around, but I didn't buy my first drum set until, uh, like a year and a half later, I scraped up money to go to, um, uh, a guitar center thing like that and, and buy a, like a, just a CB 700, just a cheapo set. Cool. What, but, what, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, what do you remember about recording screaming for change? And do, do you play on all the songs or is split between you and someone else? No, no Pat Dyson was the, the, the drummer. Big Pat was the, the drummer and they had recorded their demo and then recorded the songs that, um, that were going to be uniform church. I think there were eight of them that were done. Um, because Pat, you know, Pat, Pat was working on that and we were working on that kind of concept of what we were going to do. And then Pat Dyson, um, who played football at Corona Del Mar, uh, left for college to go play. I think he was at Louisville. And, and I got a call in my dorm at, at UCLA. I got a call from Pat. And he goes, hey, listen, Pat, uh, Dyson can't play. And then he's going to college. And we got a show in Riverside. We're going to come and get you. Where are your drums? And I'm like, I, I haven't played drums in like three months. I'm at school. You know, it was hilarious. And he's like, no, 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 you got to do it. I'm like, um, okay, well, and he went, they went down, picked up my drums from my mom and dad's house, came up to UCLA, picked me up, played me their demo because they had, you know, that's all they had. I think we did five or six songs at that show in Riverside, which was a crazy fun show. And it was great. And that's the first show I ever played. We never rehearsed. Um, I only knew the songs because, you know, I like, they're my friends and I knew the, the songs vaguely. And that was the first time I ever played. And that's when we started. And then uh, I said, well, you know, we've got some time here. I'd like to contribute to this album. And, uh, you know, they were all, sure. So we, uh, we wrote two songs. Uh, we wrote Screaming for Change. We wrote Once I Cry. And um, uh, Pat had, written all of the lyrics to Screaming for Chain, I mean, uh, the other songs. And I said, hey, you know, um, I want to write um, the lyrics to Screaming for Change and Once I Cry, is that all right? And he's like, yeah, sure, no problem. So I was fortunate enough to to write the lyrics and play on, on Screaming for Change, the song, and Once I Cry. So those are the two efforts that I did for 
for that um, for the, the album screen for change. That is so wild that you wrote the the lyrics on "Once I Cry." How does that how does that feel to like? Okay, so that song sonically is amazing. Obviously, and you write these awesome lyrics for it, and then to get to hear your lyrics like through the vehicle of Pat Dubar's voice, like how does that feel hearing that song with him singing it the first time? It was really a lot of fun. It was cool. Again, I can't stress enough to you that it's humbling. You know, this back in it, when it's like in the mid eighties to, to be able to um, be a part of a movement that I loved. I mean, I was just all in on, on hardcore, on straight edge and on hardcore and the people and, and, you know, the different scenes, it was just so um, electric to me. So, First of all, those guys had, you know, as, as the lead guy for Uniform Choice, allowed me, um, his buddy, to write the lyrics. It wasn't like, um, he was like, yeah, please. Because, you know, sometimes, I don't know if you've been in a band, but it's hard sometimes if you're the only lyricist. Just like it's hard if you don't get any help, uh, if you've got to write all the songs. So I think he was like, yeah, great, whatever. And he he liked the the words, and it was able, we were able to do that um, and all the projects we did, the Unity Project, uh, the Blood Days, and then during the summer, we were able to, hey, do you want to write these? Well, why don't you write these? And then I'll write these. And that's, that's it was, there wasn't any like ego involved at all. It was more like um, collaboration. And that's what I like about the guys in Uniform Choice, that it was a collaboration. Now, I can't play guitar, Pat can't play guitar, but we, we used to hum stuff. I still did this with Foster in the, in the Winds of Promise stuff. He comes in here and we write the write stuff, and I hum stuff, and it's hilarious. Because then he can write, you know, he can play on a guitar, and and that's kind of what we did with uh, with Uniform Choice and with the Unity too. Right, but Once I Cry is like a standout track in the way that is pretty different from the other songs on the record that are like pretty straightforward rippers. Like it's a little more. I mean, he he does the poems at the end of of several records, but this is like, I don't know, it's in a more emotional song and his voice is so rad on it. Like how did, I don't know. What did you think about like doing this song as a part of the album? Like, did you think that it was a, a little bit of a, a sidebar track or did you think it was like right in the lane? No, I thought, and we thought that, uh, that it was something that it was mellow, mellow, a little bit more mellow, obviously for sure. But boy, I tell you, man, playing that song, especially live, there's a there's a lot of uh, I can't tell you how hard and I used to smash the cymbals and 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 the the the, the snare during the song because it didn't necessarily have to be as fast as we could or you know slammy from Miami every song we did that one was we go just as crazy. Kind of, you know, kind of honestly, kind of like if you listen to Embrace, you know, the, the, uh, the, the, um, you've got Minor Threat and which is extremely, you know, hardcore. Um, but then you have, you know, the Embrace stuff and they're, they're going just as crazy. They're just not, the tempo just isn't as, as, um, fast. So I, we thought it was a really cool thing. Um, 
and I was I was happy that uh, that Pat sang that so, so great um, uh, on that album for sure. Yeah, how does the uh, the popularity expand for Uniform Choice like after the LP comes out? Um, which one? Scream for Change. Yeah, Scream for Change. Scream for Change was um, it went from playing shows, lots of shows, to headlining shows, and that was kind of a big deal around here because there weren't a lot of places to play, um, and then. All of a sudden, boom, it opened up and there were a whole hell of a lot of places to play right when we were able to, to, um, to pull enough people in to be a headlining act like at, at, at Fenders and um, uh, various other places uh, in the area. And it was, it was really cool. It was, um, and we took it very seriously, too. So, you know, we flyered stuff. We, we had T-shirts. And, and, it, strangely enough, again, I'm only going to speak for myself, but I think I could speak for the other. Doing the t-shirts and flying was just so much fun. You know, making the t-shirt designs for Wishing Well and for the band was just a hell of a lot of fun. So we worked really hard to be able to, to uh, headline shows. You know, when bigger acts came through, um, uh, in years past, we would be, you know, we would be set underneath the headliner or maybe second. But after the LP came out, we were able to get more um, headlining shows and we respected that and worked hard at it. Um, you know, we had, geez, we must have had 15, 20 different t-shirt designs at the shows and they were all, you know, seven bucks. You know, we had um, different colors, multicolors, sleeves front back everything you can imagine so maybe we made i think we paid courtney 50 cents a shirt something like that i don't remember and we made 50 cents a shirt and so it's not all we did was the money we made from the shirts went to buying more shirts and more ink you know and more um uh uh all the stuff that went into that so to me it was just the luckiest and most fun time to be able to do that yeah, and and then at this point, you're really like the flag bearers of like the the straight edge scene in California, and so you're you're expanding that base, which a lot of like fans of that genre aren't really like the roughneck type. But you're playing some shows like the Fender stuff that is notorious for violence. How do you kind of become like protectors of like your fans, like or I I, I don't know. I guess I wasn't there, so you hear all the stories about how like violent gnarly fenders is like, is there any sort of like protection of your fans? Like if they're getting roughed up and so forth. Yeah. One of the, one of the things is first of all, Pat would take no shit from nobody on planet earth. He's a big, strong, tough guy. Victor was a very quiet guy, but you did not fuck with Victor. He, he was a tough, tough guy. So you had two guys um, Dave was, was a cool, very cool, mellow kind of a guy. His name truly is who he was, Dave Mello. He was a mellow guy. And um, and uh, so, yeah, and, you know, a lot of our friends were very loyal to us um, that played football with us. And they came to all of our shows. There's probably 
five to 20 that would come to most all of our shows. And if there was violence and there was, you're correct, a lot of violence at these shows, it was, it was not, um, I'll just put it this way. It was met with violence. That's as simple as I can, I can put it. And if, if it was a protection thing, I would say that you're not far off with that assessment because we cared, truly cared about the people that came to the shows and were, and were, you know, um, humbled that they would come out and buy our records and buy t-shirts and always talk to them before and, and after the shows and just had a great time. So if, if, um, if they're, if a, a skinhead bunch or, or some other faction was there, um, just, just there to cause chaos, they were met with chaos at every, at every turn and were never shied away from. So that was a good thing. So when you came to our shows, you knew that, that, that you would be protected and, uh, and that, uh, you had people that were on your side and that's how we wanted it to be. Yeah. It's okay if you don't want to dive into that anymore, but is there any like instances like that that stand out to you or does it all just get lumped in? Uh, no, there, I mean, quite honestly, every single show, there was a bit of violence and um, it was, there were never any shows that, that I recollect that were stopped. And there were a lot of shows that were stopped because of violence um, in our scene, you know, just smashing people and blood and, and ripping stuff down, you know, just people that were, were not really there um, to do anything but cause chaos. Um, so there weren't any, there were always, there was, there was a lot of violence, especially initially. Um, but again, it, it, at one of our shows, if you're going to show violence, then, then we're going to show violence directly right back at you. There was a show, um, um, one that I can recollect that we played in San Diego of all places, which was also a very notorious place for violence. Um, and we played with um, a band um, from New York, uh, Kraut, who uh, we really liked. I think their album had come out or the single had come out. And they were, they were really cool. And we were playing. The drummer was sick as a dog. He had the flu. But, but we were playing. And a couple of guys just kept messing with Pat up near the stage, messing, messing, bucket around, talking, you know, when he was trying to talk in between songs. And I tell you, <laughs> um, we're playing in the middle of a song and the song is over and this guy kept fucking around, messing around, messing around. And Pat walked right up to him. Uh, I think he was probably at, there was a small stage, maybe about eight inch stage, walked right up with the bottom of the mic, not the top of the mic, with the bottom of the mic and smashed him right in the face as hard as he could dropped him. Bam. Down. He went, they drug him out, blood everywhere. And he goes, okay, anybody else? All right, let's go. Boom. And that was it. No more, no more fucking around. He, you know, the guy wasn't doing, he wasn't throwing rocks or anything, but he was just, you know, an obnoxious guy, probably drunk, blah, blah, blah. There was like four or five of them. And there weren't any more after that. There were, there was a lot of that at shows, but it was over quickly. If you threw something or if you, if we saw that you were causing chaos, it, it did not, it, it was not stand. You, we didn't stand for it. 
Yeah. Do you remember any? We had a lot of we had a lot of friends. That's that's the way it was. That's great. Um, do you remember anything about the? You guys played Skate Palace in Oxnard in '87 uh, with the Butthole Surfers, Aggression, Dag Nasty. Do you remember anything about that show? I don't know if uh, I do remember the show. I remember uh, watching Butthole Surfers and how hilariously funny they were and very entertaining. I remember the show. I remember that um, uh, it, it was um, it was a lot of fun. It was a, there were a lot of people at the show. Um, I, I don't I don't remember too many specifics other than the set. You know, I, I like to remember sets and then relax and watch. I think the Butthole Surfers played. They were the headliner, so they played um, after us. But I was, you know, seeing the the other other bands and 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 I just wanted to make sure that we played a good set. And, and I, I remember that we did. I think I saw. I think there's something a few uh, online. Uh, somebody had, had directed to me a couple of years ago that there was some video of that, and I watched it. And um, and that that was fun to be able to do that. Um, but you know the specifics. You know, we all drove up there in the same truck. That that was cool. We all meet at Pat's, jump jump into a truck, and we go all we go up there together. And then you know we got to make sure our t-shirts are there, and we set that up early and figure out what time and all that stuff. You know, but that was that was a that was a cool fun show. But there were a lot of them because we played a lot, quite a bit in in from like eighty, I want to say eighty six to eighty nine. We played a lot of shows locally. And then, you know, we, we did two tours back to back in the summers and that sure was a lot of fun. I want to do one quick sidebar, which is just that you, sure. took, you took photos that ended up on uh, the first two seven seconds LPs. Uh, were you always into photography and, and also like how rad is it for you? Like as a, just a big fan of the music for an 84 and 85 to like have your photos show up on seven seconds LPs. Well, um, uh, I'll, I'll step back a little bit further is uh, I think I mentioned earlier about seven seconds for the first time they played down here was with, um, I don't think I remember. Uh, I do remember the band. It was wasted. You TSL suicidal tendencies and seven seconds. And really there weren't very many people who knew seven seconds and who they were. Um, and um, I had um, written to Kevin through uh, positive. No, it was before positive force whatever label that they had put it out, um, skins, brains, and guts. And he wrote me back and we were, we wrote back, I don't know, uh, a half a dozen or more times, long letters. And he would send me like, um, the stuff that he was promoting. Meyer threat was playing. So he'd send me flyers and stickers and stuff. Just the coolest guys, he and Steve and, and Troy, just the coolest guys. So, so when we, when we, when, when they came, you know, it was like we were already friends. I, I mentioned this before, but it'll lead me to what, uh, what I'm coming up to. So when they played, and they played, uh, I think the next night they played uh, up in L.A., and I went to that show, and we hung out and had fun and just, you know, shot the shit, and we had a great time. That's when the, 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 uh, a real friendship started. And when they came back around, um, I think a year later on tour, <laughs> unfortunately for them, my mom and dad were were gone for the weekend. So I had the house and I said, you guys just come and stay at my house. So they did. We had so much fun messing around, having a good time. They're very cool. They didn't, you know, they didn't break anything or anything like that. It was they were very respectful, but it was the funniest thing in the whole world. All of them would come down. I think Steve 
or, or, or Kevin's girlfriend came and a couple other people. So there's a whole bunch of people at my parents' house with me. And we're just having a fine, fun time. And that camaraderie came into us, um, you know, when they were doing recording, he was like, do you have any pictures or anything? And, you know, and I'm like, well, I'm going to take pictures when I go to show that show, you know, when they were playing. And then, okay, cool. Because I have pictures of that first show that nobody's ever seen um, of the Wasted Youth TSOL Suicide of Tennessee's show. So I just brought it to like have a memento for myself. Um, and, and then Kevin was like, well, do you have any, you know, when they came back down again, we're going to do this record. I want you, you guys to come and sing backing vocals. So we all did that. Joe and Rob and, uh, and, uh, a guy on my baseball team that went to high school with us, Pete, uh, and Dubar and Courtney, we all went there for backing vocals. And I had taken a bunch of pictures of the shows when they were doing, even at the Olympic auditorium, I took pictures of that too. And I just sent it to them and they, they were like, Oh, cool. And they used it for the backs of the albums. And that's how kind of things were, you know, it was just like fun. You know, I, I just had a, like a little instant camera. It wasn't like any big deal. So rad. So rad. Uh, let's talk about uh, doing wishing well a little bit. Cause in, sure. in 86, you start doing more bands. Um, the standouts from that year would be, First off, you do Youth Today Break Down the Walls, their first LP. Um, right. How did you feel about that at the time? Like, how did you meet them and how did you come across them? In, in the dynamic of Wishing Well, um, it was, I like to do the artistic stuff. So, unlike today, which is super, super I can't believe how much easier it is. Now, it's still challenging, but how easier, you know, back then, you got an idea. I remember getting a manila envelope sent to me with like little bits of pictures of these guys and their lyrics written down. And I'm like, Oh Jesus. And they want to, you know, I want to do this as the cover, the, the, the picture. And, um, that was it. And then I had to, all right, well, uh, let's, okay, let me, let me kind of figure this out. And that was the fun part for me was, you know, getting the typesetting done. <laughs> I had to go, you know, in those days you went to uh, a printer, gave them the stuff and they typeset it for you. So then you got to go back and if they make mistakes, you, they got to redo it. I mean, it took forever, but like laying out the lyric sheet, um, how the colors for the lyric sheet, the colors for the album, how things wanted to be laid out in the back and stuff. That's the stuff that I really like doing. That's what I did. And, um, I talked to the bands and stuff and yapped with them. And Pat and I always made the decisions, you know, 50, 50 about if we wanted to do something and how we wanted to do it. But, you know, with those guys, it was kind of a natural thing because they were, you know, you know, very straight edge and, and, and very aggressive. And, and it, I thought it was, we thought it would be really fun to be able to, to do something for them. Um, not necessarily, it was never in the beginning that, Oh geez, we need to build this label. Not at all. It was like, there's no, sometimes there's no place for some of these people to go without them getting ripped off. And, you know, all we could promise is if you send us the stuff and you're recording, we'll get it done. We'll master it. Um, we'll put out a, a phenomenal looking package. We'll do tea, whatever. And then we'll send you a bunch of, tea, a bunch of uh, records once they're printed for you to sell. That's just kind of how we did it. it. It wasn't like we were a big, money-making operation it really truly wasn't it was like if you want to put it out 
we have a place to put it out. You can make some money with this and, and by me giving you the album back and we'll, we'll just try to, you know, have enough money to make the next one. That's kind of how it was. Yeah. Was there a misunderstanding and a falling out with them at some point? Uh, I'm told there was, I don't remember. I, I, yeah, there, there was, there was, but it, I honestly, um, I don't remember it being about something that I worried about or it was something that it was, you know, like it was, it was not, it was not something that I, um, we were, we had moved on to other projects and that we were like, I, I, I this is years later. So I didn't know. Strangely enough, uh, about a year ago, year and a half ago, uh, Purcell or, or Foster, uh, Purcell got a Foster and um, chatted a little bit. And I said, you know what? Let me go in the basement. I went to the basement of my house and I found, I mean, I still had all their original pictures and that was something they really wanted. Like, he's like, John was like, you know, Pat, could you really, that would mean something. And I'm like, of course. So I sent everything to him. Um, and then Revelation said, hey, you know, do you have anything? We'd like to put this on our wall. Um, do you have any of the, the uh, you know, original type settings and the stuff? And of course. So I gave it to them too. So what, there was no, you know, for me, there is no, there was no animosity. Um, but I could see where, where they would think that, that they would be not having a record company themselves that this was just something that we wanted to do to be able to give somebody a voice and to have something in your hand that's yours forever and not 15 extra dollars. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a mean way. It's just, that's not the way that I um, envisioned this. This was, we have, we can't, there's no one we can trust to put it out and put it out the right way with the right colors and the right, you know, um, lyric sheet being doubled and the size and even the uniform choice screen for change. I wanted to do a poster and I said, I don't give a shit what it costs. We're not going to recoup any money off the stuff anyway. So we put the poster in the first, the, you know, that monstrous poster we did. So it was about quality and not about making money. And I think maybe they resented that. I, I, I don't know because I never really had a conversation with them um, because it, it, it wasn't something that I was bothered by. Yeah, it wasn't your piece. You're like, I didn't make any typos on the record, dude. Don't bother me. Uh, yeah, no, you know, even when they, even when they're mad during it, I, I want, I, I just, it, I didn't care. It wasn't that I'm like, I'm offended by that. If they were mad, they were mad. I mean, I, I don't. Wh- what would you like me to do? You know, I, I, I'm not. I don't have a Maserati on um, because of the proceeds from Break Down the Walls. That's kind of my, my attitude is I got other shit I've got to deal with. Um, we did what we said we were going to do and we're just learning. And that we made that crystal clear. Listen, we're just learning you guys to everybody, you know, the conversations that I had, but Pat was a guy that took lead on, on like, Hey, do you want to do shades apart? And I said, fuck yeah, that is a phenomenal record. You know, stuff like 76% uncertain. Yes. Apology. Um, yes, Shades Apart, yes, Grave Goods, yes. Stuff we really, we liked. I only wanted to put out stuff that I liked. Oh, this is cool and interesting. You know, that's kind of what, how we went about things. Yeah, the other one I wanted the thing to... I, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, I was going to say the only thing I regret we didn't hang, I didn't hang on long enough was to do 
the compilation. We were going to do a compilation, which I was like super gung ho with, was a call going to be called a changing of the leaves. And we had the coolest band, seven seconds, just everybody you could imagine, you know, we had secured that we were going to put a new song on it. So it was like not retread songs, but like some, they were all going to go to the studio and do a song for this particular one thing. And I regret that we, we didn't quite be able to do that. Cause that would have been super cool. So that would have been 88 ish, 88, 89, 89. It would have been, I think, I think the last uniform choice show was 1989 when we, we came back on tour and then we played uh, a couple of shows uh, and 89 was our last tour. So it would have been 88 to 89. Yeah. And, and it was, you know, I had all the artwork and stuff and it just, it just didn't pan out. Did bands record for it? Yeah, they had they, they they had songs that they hadn't recorded. You know, like when somebody's going into an uh, to uh, this is how it was back then. Hey, listen, we're gonna put a compilation together. Okay, are you in the studio? Yeah, we're going to the studio. Okay, well, keep one for us. You know, it was one of those things. Right. Oh, okay, all right, okay, we'll we'll do that. That that's kind of how it was. So we had we had a bunch of cool cool stuff. Uh, for that, I, and, and I, that's the that's the only regret I have with Wish World that I wasn't able to squeeze that one out because that would have meant that would have been pretty cool. Yeah, the other one from '86 that is a standout is the first Blast LP, "The Power of Expression," uh, which is very, very, very cool band. Very cool band. So powerful, so strong. Uh, it was uh, they were cool. I liked them a lot. Yeah, what was it like seeing them back then? Because they're they're such a standout for me. Power, just power, just just a different power though. You know, they didn't play they didn't play DRI speed. They were just you know, they were just a powerful, strong, um, in your face, grab you by the throat band, and they were really cool guys too. Yeah, um, let me punish you with one more rumor. Um, you bet. Is it, is it true that they had, <laughs> is it true that they had to have like a semi straight edge song to be on Wishing Well? No. Okay. N- nobody had anything to do with anything. We would never, um, never in a million years would we um, tell somebody that they have to do something um, for our label. Whatever it was, that's what you. That's what is fine with us because got to meet the guys and. And it, you know, in each one of these bands, and that's the only thing that that um, that we uh, that I cared about is that this is so cool to be able to put it out on our label. But more importantly, we knew what it was like to be able to go. I don't have anybody that I trust that I would put it out that we could give that back to somebody else. You know what I mean? That was just the coolest thing in the whole world for me too to have that feeling to be able to be a part, like we talked about in the beginning, to add my part, small part, to the whole of hardcore. And that's that's what it is. Whether I'm taking pictures or I'm, I'm, I'm just a, a regular guy going to all the shows and stage diving and having fun, it, 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 was, it was the same high. You know, being more a part of it with Wishing with, 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 with Well and with... Uh, you know, from Choice of Unity and stuff like that was great, but it was still that high of seeing a band like when Dag came through, you know, 
that was just so fun. We were fortunate enough to play with them when, when they came through here at Fenders. Uniform Choice played and then Dag played. And, you know, I, I couldn't wait to finish our set and push my, throw my drums to the side and get out there and, and sat and, and stood with Pat Dubar right next to the, um, to the uh, backup vocals and sang every single backing vocal on every single song. That was cool. See, just being a part of it too. Not just, I couldn't wait. I was happy we played. We had a great time. It was great. And fans were great. And we had jumping around and I, I think I chipped my tooth. Um, but to be able to, to see a new band or a band that, you know, that you were super excited to see, that was just as fun as playing for me. How do you approach um, the writing for Staring to the Sun? Because it, it's a pretty big change musically. Um, but there are still like a lot of the the elements from Screaming for Change. Like Pat gets to do, he gets to vary his voice more, you know? But he does still like have those parts where he belts it out. And it's it's so rad in that way. Like to hear the like him hit those notes like in a different style of music. But what was the approach sure. to this album, and uh, and how did you think it was going to be received? Um, the approach was just we wanted to continue to play some hardcore songs. I am you are a kind of a different cause. Those are especially kind of a different cause that that would have fit just nicely on screen for change because that would is we play. I, I played that as hard as fast as almost anything I could ever play live. We played everything faster, ten times faster, even even the other songs. But those songs, you know, were a lot of fun. And but we just wanted to, you know, I, I think it was, it was we just wanted to come up with some other mellow type songs because mellower meaning just as is coming straight from the heart, but in in a, in a more melodic tone. I mean. You know, it, we didn't come out and say, we never had a conversation. It's so funny. I, I've answered this um, uh, quite a few times when we were, uh, when, when my, my band, when the Promise were on tour in, in Germany last year. It was so funny. People asked me more questions about staring into the sun than they did about Screaming for Change. Um, so I had to like remember, uh, like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's not like we, we, we went out and said, okay, we're going to do an about face. It wasn't like we were TSOL, which were great friends of ours. You know, they were going to, they changed people and they were going to go a different era. It wasn't like that at all. It was just like, hey, let's try this. Because if you had hear, heard, if people had heard some of the demo stuff that we had done for, before Staring Into the Sun, they were really hard. Even the Staring Into the Sun songs were 10 times harder. Um, but you know, you get in the studio and Pat wanted to experiment, which he later did after, you know, he wanted to go and play more of a rock genre music. So maybe that was, you'd have to ask him that, but that was probably something that was in the back of his mind about just trying to, instead of screaming everything, try something else, a, a different thing that could be a challenge. And it was a challenge to us doing it. And um, I, I don't, I understand where some people um, were not receptive of it because it wasn't screaming for the screaming for change too, but that's just not, you know, that's just not who we were at that particular time. And it's hard to put yourself back, you know, 
25, 30 years ago in, in, in your 19 year old head. We didn't have any, I, I will just say for me, I didn't have any uh, delusions of grandeur. You know, I, didn't, I didn't think, oh, geez, you know, we're going to go straight up to what? Playing where? You know, the forum or stuff like that. It was just um, like, hey, why don't we try this? You know, and hey, Vic, do you have something a little bit more mellower? Um, yeah, okay, let's try that. You know, and then I wrote most of the lyrics for it um, because I like to write lyrics. I like uh, the poetry part about it, and, and mostly all the stuff that I've ever written are very from the heart. It's not political. Um, I, I don't really, I don't really do any of that. It's more, you know, everyday type of things that, that I think most people um, go through when they're young kids. And uh, that, that's basically, you know, what it is. It was, it, when people came to see us, especially on the second tour, um, they were like, hmm, are we going to hear this? It's like Bad Brains. Bad Brains are as, as hardcore band as you've ever seen in your life, but they also play reggae. So depending on what HR wanted to do and what night, because I was able to see them in both, you know, they'll play 35 minutes of reggae and then two hardcore songs or 35 minutes of hardcore and a couple of reggae songs. That's what I think people thought in the second tour. And that's not the way it was. We played a hardcore set as hard as you could ever imagine, because we understood that people were like, geez, we came to see, you know, this is, is this going to be a hardcore show? Well, they were because, you know, every song was, you know, nine times faster than it was on the album. So that's kind of how I, uh, I address it. Now, I, I'm just, you know, again, I'm just happy that people um, liked what we were doing and cared about it because I can honestly say that we cared um, as much uh, about hardcore than, especially me, than anything else in my life. So it was from the heart. Sometimes there are hits, sometimes there are misses. But even in the misses, at least, you know, uh, we were trying to go. Um, full force and whatever we were trying to do. Yeah, I think there's a lot of hits on that record, though. Like, I think people, most people low-key like it a lot. It's just, it's hard after doing Screaming for Change, right? It's one of the greatest hardcore albums of all time. Like, top five. So, uh, how, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, I mean, I still, I mean, again, I, it, I, I understand. I totally understand um, why people would be taken aback by it. I do. I understand, especially now in retrospect, but you know, that's not how we, we didn't, we weren't trying to be hit makers. We were just like, Hey, why don't we try this? This is something, you know, and I go, Hey, listen, if we're going to do this, I want to do a gatefold. I want to do this stuff. Cause obviously why don't we just spend every nickel that we could ever make on this thing on the production and everything else. So we laughed about it because we didn't make any money on the, any of these things, especially uh, the uh, staring into the sun. Um, but, you know, it was worth it. I wouldn't really, ch- there's nothing I, you, you would change. I wish we would have been, had a, one more crack at a third album because I will tell you 100% that the third album would have been harder. We would have gone back to a harder thing, um, uh, a more hard, uh, closer to screaming for change um, with other couple of things, um, more like uh, Once I Cry, probably, if they were going to be more melodic. But that's okay. I'm very happy with the, the couple things that we were able to do. Yeah. Do you have any stand-up memories from 
the the 88 tour or the 89 tour just like being on the east coast and so forth uh yeah a lot of stuff the, the 88 tour like i said we threw everything together we had no windows and no air conditioning in the the and we went in dead, the dead of summer our first show was in chicago so we had to be in chicago in like two days so we were just flying to get there and you know getting there was crazy uh i got stopped by a trooper in I- iowa going 104 miles an hour in this thing <laughs> and the funniest thing trying to get there in time and he makes i was driving because we all took turns but i was driving like oh my god we get out of the car and everybody's peeking through the side he makes me this you know, little guy with a, a big wide-brimmed um trooper hat screaming at me boy he goes I'll never forget this. Boy, what in the hell do you think that you are doing? And I'm like, I don't know, sir. He goes, what are you in a hurry? You set three people into the cornfield by cutting them off. All right, it took me 20 minutes to catch up with you. And I'm, and they're all dying laughing. And I'm like, shit in my pants. He goes, what are you in a hurry for? I go, well, sir, we're in a band and we have a show. And before I can get it out, thank God, he goes, are you playing the fair? I go, yes, we, I go, I go, I go, yes, sir, we are. He goes, well, boy, you better get going if you're going to play that fair. Do I have your word that you will, um, you will, after the, you guys play your set, that you will go to the, uh, to the, uh, to the judge and take care of this. I go, yes, sir, we will. <laughs> and we got back in the car and everybody was laughing at me, making fun. And we just, I, I to this day, I laugh. I even tell my kids, we ever go to Iowa. I can't drive. So that's, that's, that's the story. That's how the tour started. Um, but it was, it was funny. We played Chicago it was crazy. We played, uh, CBGB's. I remember the craziest show you've ever seen. And we ever played the place was so packed. They, you couldn't fit eight, eight more people in there. If your life depended on it, we played the show and, there was so much condensation on my symbols that I almost passed out. It was so hot. And I don't know if you have, have been to a, a hardcore show there, but it was crazy hot, no ventilation, middle of the summer, you know, 80, 80, 90 degrees. Just, you know, we wanted to play well and just playing like madman as crazy as you could go. And I, I remember just laying down behind my kit after just exhausted and then having to get up and go play the next night in New Jersey with, uh, with the Goo Goo Dolls. The Goo Goo Dolls opened up for us the next night in New Jersey. So, you know, shit like that, you can't make up how crazy and fun it was. And then we played with COC in Buffalo, like two days later. You know, we opened up for, for Corrosion of Conformity. You know, crazy stuff like that was just, just so much fun. How, how were the crowds, like, receptive to you? Like, everyone knew your stuff, yeah? Uh, yeah, everybody knew the stuff, and everybody was patiently waiting until we stay, you know, we played because we, we started because, you know, they had heard the album or the, the albums in 89 and the album in 88. So they wanted to put, you know, similar to when you see Minor Threat for the first time, when I saw him, I'm like, everybody, your heart beating, you're excited, you're playing, you're ready to go push it on stage for them to start, you know, and they come out and you're all awestruck. Um, and I wouldn't say that they were like that, but I was saying that they were apprehensive. And then as soon as we start playing, it's, you know, no fucking around one song after the other, bam, 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 bam. So it was like a tornado. 
And that's how, you know, that's how it was. And to see the joy and the chaos on stage and stage driving and, and craziness and people smashing into my fucking drums while I'm playing, you know, and, and, you know, just, it's, it was fun. It was, it was worth every second of eating 8,000 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that we had to eat um, on these tours and whatever else we could get. You know, I mean, it was great. Playing the 930 club was phenomenal because obviously that's Washington, D.C. You know, that's Minor Threat. That's, you know, SOA. That's these bands, these crazy phenomenal bands that you have your singles in the albums. And you get to play the 930 club. And we were fortunate enough to play with Detroitson, who was a phenomenal band from um, Minnesota. And to have, you know, obviously, you know, you've got, you've got the, uh, the D.C., um, uh, crew there coming to our show, you got to play well. Um, and that was kind of fun. Excitement, you know, fresh, um, just freshness and exciting and meeting all the guys and, and, and meeting, uh, you know, the Ian's and the Collins and Roger from Dag Nasty, these guys. And then we were lucky enough. We came back on tour that Roger, um, Marbury was, uh, the bass player for Dag Nasty. He and Mike Gator, were our um, guys who came out on tour with us. We just had so much fun. Um, and that's kind of, I, I talk about it now is that's kind of the camaraderie of this stuff. I mean, Dag Nasty, Dag Nasty, the bass player in that band was hanging out with us, coming on tour, you know, helping us with our equipment and just having fucking fun. There was no, you know, ego involved. Uh, I remember um, going to visit Kevin and Steve um, in Reno and they lived with their mom in a two bedroom apartment. And, and my friend Pete and I just driving all the way to Reno in my beat up, um, 710 Dotson lift back, um, and showing up just, Hey, what's up? Hey, Pat, how are you doing? We stayed the night and they stayed out on the couches and they gave us their room. And then they're like, Hey, we're going to Salt Lake, Salt Lake city to play a show with Pusshead's band. Um, Septic death. You want to go? Yeah, sure. So I roadied, we roadied for them. You know, that's just the way things were. Just a lot of fun. A lot of great memories. So rad. Um, so you get back from the, the second U.S. tour and Uniform Choice breaks up. Can you talk about the breakup, why that came about? Well, yeah, it, it was uh, Vic, Vic couldn't and wasn't going to go on the second tour. So we got, um, a replacement, another Pat, uh, Mahoney, uh, to play guitar. He did a great job. And then Dave had left, uh, the year earlier to play in TSOL. And, uh, we got John Master Polo, who uh, was buddies with us to play bass. So we had a you know really fun time on that tour as well. Um, and we get back and, you know, it was just Pat wanted to, wanted to go and move to New York and he was going to play in uh, a different, you know, like a kind of a, a rockish band. And that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to continue pursuing music that way. And I was, you know, I just graduated, I was graduating college and I was done. I, I you know, I gotta, I gotta get going. I gotta get a job and I had a job lined up and, you know, our last show was, at the country club with uh, bad religion and, and toxic reasons. It was a great show. We had a great time with a lot of fun. And, and that was it. And it wasn't, 
it wasn't like there was a big blow up, big fist fight, nothing like that. It was just, it's come to its end, its natural end. When was uh, Blood Days recorded? The the LP is like an incorporation of the seven inch plus new songs, but uh, yeah, yeah, okay. it was. Um, trying to remember, I was still. It had to have been nineteen eighty eight. Um, it was nineteen eighty eight for sure because I was still uh, we were still at Pepperdine. I I got to UCLA for two years and then I transferred to Pepperdine, and uh, I remember because. I'm sure it was 88 because uh, I was living in Sally Field's house in Malibu um, in one of her, <laughs> in one of her rooms. And, and we had staged the back cover um, master polo and um, foster were supposed to be up. And they were like two hours late because they went bodyboarding in Malibu. And I remember Joe and I laugh about this. I mean, we, we don't have cell phones back then. So I'm like, this guy was supposed to be here at this time. They, they were, they were fucking around. Um, and they walked in the door and I almost killed him. A Dubar had to stop me from, um, from killing him because we we're sitting around waiting. Um, and we had done the, the, the back cover for that. And Pat came up with the front cover because he wanted to do, um, he wanted his the first release on his uh, label powerhouse to be the unity. And he wanted to redo the vocals on it because he thought that he could do them better. I don't know about better, but he wanted, he was some stuff on there that he didn't like. Like I'm, I'm sure all singers don't like stuff perfectly that they've done in the past. And then we had gotten together, uh, Master Polo Foster and I um, earlier, uh, and and pounded out. I think it was four or four or five other songs, and had a great time doing it. Yeah, that back cover is something. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's you, something. You don't, look, you don't look upset. You, you seem pretty chill in the photo. It uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. We didn't have anything to do. You know, we're going to do it. Uh, I, I didn't have any, I didn't have any clothes. I think I have cowboy boots on and, and it just, it was hilarious. Pat can't play guitar, but he goes, Hey, I want to, I want to have a guitar in my hand. I go, you, you, you don't play guitar. He goes, I, I don't care. And so it was, it was hilarious. It was like kind of the last minute. My girlfriend at the time took the picture. It was one of those types of things, you know, just like throw some shit there, throw some junk around, bring some stuff you want to do. You know, we're going to just throw stuff all over the place and then take a back cover picture. That was all. It wasn't like, you know, some big, well-thought-out thing. Um, but it was funny to, yeah, I, I, I just tried to get the pictures over with because I wanted to kill Foster. Um, but that, 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 that's a 30-year, that's, a um, uh, that's something that's gone through uh, my relationship with Foster for the last 30 years. Every third or fourth time I see him, I want to choke him. And we get a laugh out of that all the time. Actually, I'll tell you a funny story. Great. So Unity is um, practicing. Um, so this had to be, this is at my mom and dad's house in Laguna Hills. So it has to be like 1980, 80, damn, two, 83, maybe 83. Um, and we're practicing for the seven inch. And we're in my garage in the middle of the day practicing and foster and I could kind of annoy each other. I'll just 
uh, I'll say I probably annoy him as much as he annoyed me. Um, I mellowed out a little bit, but I was a bit of a hothead. And um, we were going at it, and um, I don't know what he got mad. And he goes, you know, something like, you know, fuck you. I'll kick your ass. I'm like, that's all I need. I was super happy because I, I wanted to hit him. So I said, hey, why don't we do this? And Dubar's laughing. I go, I've got boxing gloves. And I boxed a lot as a young kid. He goes, you bet. I'm kicking your ass. So he gets on the boxing gloves. I put on the boxing gloves. And we're ready to go. And I go, go ahead, go, ding, ding. So Pat goes, ding, ding. He comes running at me. And I hit him with a right hand. Perfect. Right on the jaw. He stumbled back. Flipped over my dad's old um, aluminum trash can, smashed into the um, to the lawnmower, and was laying there with his tongue hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of relationship that Joe and I still have to this day. But we laugh about it. We don't. It's not as contentious as before because we bust up and laugh about these things all the time now. But you know, he was equally as frustrated with me as band members get. And I couldn't wait to jump over my drums to get to him. Um, and it was just kind of fun. It was bing, bomb, done. But to see him stumble back and flip over the trash can and knock into there, we all busted up laughing. It was hilarious. And that was it. One shot. I tell him to this day, one shot knockout. At least you're wearing gloves. You wouldn't want to ruin that modeling career. Oh, yeah. You're exactly right. Uh, he he still talks about it today. And, uh, and uh, the only thing he should be now is a hand model. That's for sure. <laughs> so can we talk a little bit about the end of wishing well and be, before wishing sure. well ends you, I don't, I don't understand how things work, but you hook up with giant. Is that like a distribution deal? And then things just get like kind of too complicated. Uh, giant was only going to be, was only going to put out staring into the sun. It had nothing to do with wishing well. Okay. We had uh, we had distribution, but it was with um, Dutch, Dutch East India. That's um, and then what we would also do is you know drive records to um, the various record stores too, and then they buy them. You know, like okay, how much do you want for these? Do, 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 stuff like that. So the giant thing was, why don't we try to not uh, do everything ourselves and see if we can naive, obviously trust somebody that maybe we can um, uh, put the record out without us having to go bankrupt to do it. Because each one of these things, one paid for the other, that paid for the other, wasn't like we're a monstrous money-making machine. That's just not how things work. Um, and that's, we, that's why don't we do that and make, make somebody else do a lot of the work. And the only thing we cared about was the fact that we have complete control over how it sounds, which they didn't care. And uh, what it looks like, which they didn't care. So we still had those two things, and, and, and we were cool with that. We did most of the work anyway, you know, the typesetting and stuff like that. Um, so that's, that's how that came about. And the end of Wishing Well was the same thing with the end of Uniform Choice. It, could, it, it was just kind of done. You know, there wasn't any, you know, um, bad words or anything like that. It was just done. Just you know, I got to go do this. You got to do that. Does Unity play any shows after Blood Days comes out? No, not that I not that I rec, uh, not, not that I remember. Okay, and then does no? I, I don't I, I don't think it did. It did it did with uh, the single with Uniform Choice. Like I said a little bit earlier, we right. played a couple of shows together, right. um, and we played a bunch of shows. You know, 
simultaneous uniform choice. But uh but not nothing after movies. not not after Blended. Um Winds of Promise plays a, a couple of Unity songs on on tour and that's a lot of fun. I, I, I'm uh, you know, we play a uniform choice song and we played a, a Unity song, um, a Positive Mental Attitude. And that's a lot of fun to play, to remember to do those, because it was really cool, to, you know, to learn those songs again. It didn't take very much time. It, you know, they're pretty record slammy. But they're sure a lot of fun to play live. People seem to like them a lot. Yeah, do you do, you do anything musically um, between the end of Uniform Choice and then doing Winds of Promise in 2018? For about a year and a half, there were some uh, guys who I'm still really good friends with, the singer, anyway. Um, for about a year and a half, we played a couple of, you know, like four or five shows around the area. Um, but for me, it was just for fun. Just just having a lot of fun. Uh, uh, there are a couple of places down south that we played, small little places. And, um, it was, and the kids that I had in the band were, you know, 10, 12 years younger than me. So I was just the drummer of the band. It was, it was fun though. I had a lot of fun doing it. Um, it was, um, uh, a, a very upbeat, melodic funky, punky stuff. Um, but with guys who were not punks. So it was still kind of fun. What was that? In band? fact, what was, what was that band called? That band was called soul ignition. Okay. Um, S O L and then ignition. So we played, we played, uh, I don't know, six, eight shows, something like that. But it was fun. It was just, it was just a, a, a bunch of guys uh, that I liked that were younger that kind of enthused me. But that was it. And then I, I didn't play you know, for like 30 years, almost 30 years. I didn't have, I didn't even have, in fact, I do have my drum set. It's up in the attic. The Uniform Choice drum set's up the attic. I've never brought it down. It's just, you know, Foster gave me a call. I don't know how he tracked me down. I hadn't talked to him in you know, 25, 28 years. And he said, hey, I want to do something. And I go, I don't even own a drum set. But I had a guy that was selling a drum set. It's the craziest thing. It locked stock and barrel because he was buying a new one for his studio. He was a friend of mine. And so I went and bought it for like $1,500, symbols, everything. It's the same kit I have now. And I started playing and he came down and we just had a lot of fun. Just, we weren't going to really do much. He's like, if you know Foster, I don't, I don't know if you know Joe. Joe likes the new next project. So he's like, we'll just put out a single. We'll get Rob on the phone. And Rob came down. It was hilarious. He came down from, uh, he was living in uh, Arizona. That's where he lives. And we, I hadn't seen him forever. And I didn't even know he was alive. And, uh, we got together and we had fun and was fooling around. And then he, I didn't know he was still friends with John Laurie. Um, and so we actually played his unity in my garage for the first time and played like three or four songs. And it was just, it was hilarious. A lot of fun. That was like, uh, the beginning of wins of promise. Cause I didn't really, I just wanted to fool around and jam with Joe, but he's always like, Hey, let's do a single. That's his, Hey, let's just record a couple songs. We'll do a single. We'll do a seven inch. And then, uh, you know, that led to Joe Nelson um, joining us and then just, you know, a couple of albums and we toured and we've had, we've, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. How did that feel to like do a band again with like a purpose? I mean, you, you, you can, 
you know, say it's just for fun, but a hardcore band doing two LPs, that's something. Yeah. Well, I tell you, it, it's, um, I wouldn't say that I've changed, but you become more aware uh, that things don't matter as much and you don't go from zero to a thousand. I used to do that when, when I was uh, younger, if you don't get your way or something's not going your way. So, um, uh, Joe is, um, a, a friend and he and I just, we, we get along in our writing. I can calm down. First of all, he doesn't remember anything, nothing, zero from one lick to the next. So I have to remind him and then, and then just like it, 30 years ago, again, I had to tape record everything before cause he'd forget his licks, his little riffs, which he's so wonderful at. So now I've got it. I go, Hey, all right, this is cool. I'd hum something to him and da, 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 da. we come up with something, we record it. It'd be done because he'd forget it. But I'd rec- you know, next time, next practice we'd have, I go, this is what I need you to do. He goes, okay. So we did that and you know, it was fun. It was, um, it was worth doing. And Nelson was, you know, Nelson had not been in a band and never in his wildest dreams wanted to be in a band, but you know, decided, you know, kind of the same thing that I did is, well, what if, you know, it's just going to be a hobby. It's going to be fun. And I think after two albums and a tour and, and, you know, we've been able to play with, uh, like great bands like Gorilla Biscuits and, uh, and, uh, uh, Field Day and a whole shitload of cool bands in, in, uh, in Europe. It's just, it's very fun. It's very rewarding to do again. I never thought in a million years I would. And I'm very fortunate to get that same feeling back, um, especially live. You know, you know, you play a venue and there's a couple hundred people, but they're going, you know, they're, they, they, they love the stuff that you're doing and, and, and really want to hear the old stuff too, obviously. Um, that, that's, it's rewarding. It's fun. To, it's fun to play. And that, that real, to get that feeling again of apprehension and butterflies before you play in front of an audience is something that I had missed and it was really cool. That rules. Are, are you still friends with Pat Dubar? I haven't talked to Pat in 30 years, so I'd have to say, no, we're not friends. Yeah. Uh, and that's too bad. It's, that's too bad. That's the falling out was over frivolous, silly things. Um, but, uh, I'm not, I'm not mad or anything. You know, I mean, I was, but I'm not mad because it doesn't, doesn't do anybody any good. I wish him well. Um, uh, he, uh, we've never, our paths have never crossed. Um, my two sons, I, I went to uh, a Catholic high school in um, Santa Ana, modern day, as he did. And I guess I know that he's coaching there now. He coaches football there. Both my kids played football and baseball. And, uh, so I'd have to go there for football and baseball games. And my father of all people ran into him there and they chatted for a while. But, uh, you know, I never let on to anybody, um, it's really nobody's business, uh, the negative things that tear people apart. It's unfortunate. Um, but uh, I, I haven't talked to him. I think the last time I talked to him, honestly, was, I think it's almost 30, it's 30 years ago, 30 years on Thanksgiving of all times. I remember having a conversation with him on the phone and, and uh, that was it. And I just stuck to my word that I, I wouldn't talk to him again. I, I didn't think that it would be this long, but you know, that's just the way life goes sometimes. 
Yeah, I wasn't setting you up for that question, just so you know. No, I mean, there's nothing to set up. I, would, I, I told you, you can answer me any, ask me anything you want, and I will answer 100% truthfully, whether it's, um, it's positive or negative. Because for me, honestly, all of it, the good and the bad, was just so worthwhile. You know, the basic tenets of straight edge, I, I, I passed on to my kids, and they're rock solid and uh, anti-drug, anti-obsession, just like I am today. And, um, you know, my friends now that are, I'm 55 years old, the friends that I have now have no idea that I play music and think it's hilarious that uh, when I go over to their house to watch football or, or for a barbecue that um, I have like a Coke. <laughs> you know, they think that's, that's really strange. Uh, and I go, well, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. Yeah, that's so rad. Um, is there anything else you think that we didn't touch on that you want to get out there? No, I, I appreciate you uh, you uh, looking me up and and uh, chatting me about these things because uh, honestly, it's some of the best times I've ever had in my life were all of these things and and uh, you know, learning from them and and uh, and coming back all these years later and seeing that. It, it really is a family community still. And that's, what's really cool about hardcore. Yeah. I always joke that I think that everyone in hardcore is about, you know, two or three people removed from each other. And I think you were what, three. That's true. That, <laughs> that's, that's the truth. That, that is, I can't, geez, I can't tell you, especially in business, I like four times major things. I've been, you know, somewhere at doing uh, out to dinner with, with a business associates and they'll say something. And, um, and then, uh, uh, they'll ask me a question about something like they, they play music or whatever. And I go, Oh yeah, I was, I was in a, 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 a subculture of a subculture of a subculture, um, uh, straight edge punk band. And they're like, Oh really? And then I'll say the name, you know, like, you know, from Tristan, and they'll go, Oh my God, duh, you know, something like that will happen. Oh, I went to this show. I went to that. Oh my God. And it's it's hilarious how that has has worked in many more times than you would would imagine. Um, so it's really cool that something that was so little, and I was to be a part of something all these years later is um, uh, very fulfilling. That's for sure. Yeah, well, you've been very very generous with your time. I really appreciate it. And uh, you got it. I appreciate it very much. Yeah, Pat. Do you feel like you've been well represented in the interview? Oh yes, sir. Okay. You, you've done a wonder, you've done a wonderful job. Okay. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. It is much appreciated. And, uh, thanks to everyone who made it happen. Uh, Dave Ito and, and everyone who Ito reached out to, to finally, uh, yeah, you. it was awesome. You, uh, yeah, it, it probably, it took a little bit. I mean, I, I just, I don't have any social media at all. So, uh, yeah, it was cool. And I appreciate you, you reaching out to, to get my opinion on, on things that happened so long ago. It's very cool. All right, man. Thanks so much. You got it, sir. All right. Have a great day.